Father, as we now come to your word, once again we ask for your blessing on the preaching of your word. Uh, your blessing is uh, the, the, the central component to it. Because if you don't bless the preaching of your word, then it's all for nothing. And so we ask for your spirit to give us uh, illumination of the text, understanding of the text, help us to see how it applies to our lives. And by your grace, we pray that we may apply the principles that we find in your word to our lives in order that Christ may be exalted in our lives and that our lives may be a testimony to your great love and mercy. Use this time, O Lord, to grow us in Christ's likeness and to glorify Christ through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the book of 1 Samuel. We'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 20 today, looking at verses 1 to 23. And this is really going to be just a continuation of our last lesson in 1 Samuel. Uh, while there's a chapter break there, we have to remember that the chapters are not divinely inspired. The text is divinely inspired, but the chapter breaks and everything aren't. Uh, this actually picks up, it resumes exactly where chapter 19 left off. Uh, and we've been seeing David persecuted. And we've seen David be a very, very bold person. Somebody whose trust in the Lord caused him to be an extremely courageous, bold uh, young man. But what we're going to see today is that even in somebody like David, who had so much trust in the Lord, he nevertheless did have moments where he struggled with fear and anxiety. And it got the best of him. And maybe you know what that's like. Maybe you know what it's like for fear and anxiety to get the best of you. And if that's the case, I think that is probably all of us at one time or another. But if you're going through that right now, if you haven't gone through it, you will someday if you're, if you're younger. Uh, but this chapter is for us. It shows us how to, uh, how to deal in a godly way with fear. Uh, in our day and age, uh, we're seeing a drastic spike in things like anxiety and, uh, and, and fear among adults and children alike. In fact, anxiety disorders have become the single most commonly diagnosed mental illness, affecting at least 15% of the American population. Recent studies have revealed that 6.8 million adults in the United States suffer from what they call general anxiety disorder. That's kind of an anxiety where there's, there's nothing in particular that's giving you anxiety, you just have a sense of anxiety. But this doesn't just affect you know, older adults, it, it also affects young adults. A study by the uh, Kaiser Family Foundation revealed that almost 50% of, uh, of people age 18 to 24 experience symptoms of depression and or anxiety. So it's a very, very real thing. Uh, th that rate, by the way, for young people is almost twice as high as it is for older adults. 
So it is becoming a bigger and bigger problem in our culture. And while no studies that I'm at least aware of uh, have been done to show any kind of correlation, I can't help but wonder when I read about these statistics related to, to fear and anxiety and depression, I can't help but wonder if the rising rates of these things have any correlation whatsoever with something else that is on the rise, and that is the number of people who are claiming no religion, who are claiming not to be Christian. Uh, According to Pew Research Center, the number of people who identify as Christians dropped to, in America, dropped to 63% in 2001, which is down from 75% 10 years earlier. Now, if you ask me, 63% is absolutely uh, way, way, way too optimistic, unfortunately. Uh, One organization that can show you that is Ligonier. They've done these studies that show that most people, probably 90 to 95 percent of people who claim to be Christian, when they're asked questions that pertain to to their faith, to to doctrine, uh, they clearly, clearly are not Christians. They don't even know who Jesus is. Uh, In in our state, um, a significant statistic is that 10% of people who uh, claim to be Christian, how how many people here claim to be Christian in our state? Not very many, but 10% of those who claim to be Christian in Washington state go to church. The other 90% don't. So what we see is that fewer and fewer people in our country are even claiming any kind of Christianity or religious affiliation. Could it be, is, is it possible that this spike, that this rise uh, in, in fear and anxiety and depression has something to do with the decrease in claimed religious affiliation? As a, as a pastor, as, as a Christian, as, as just somebody who takes the Word of God very seriously, it, it's very clear to me that there is absolutely a correlation. And while it's true that correlation doesn't always equal causation, it's equally true that sometimes correlation does indicate causation. Uh, in this case, I would argue that there would be a, uh, a causation, absolutely. Uh, But today we're going to be doing something of a case study on this correlation as we continue in our study of 1 Samuel. Now, just to refresh your memory a little bit to see how we got to this point in the text, going back a few chapters, we saw that David uh, was anointed as the next king of Israel by Samuel in a very private ceremony, which nobody but Samuel and David and, uh, and his brothers and father knew about. Uh, as David grew up after that, some, some time passed in, in, the, in the following chapters. We don't know exactly how much, but some time has passed. But in that time, he went back to shepherding where he learned to trust the Lord. Uh, he saw the Lord, we know, uh, deliver him from ferocious beasts in the wild uh, when those beasts sought to, to threaten the sheep that David was, uh, was attending to, uh, that he was looking after. But the confidence that he learned to have in God in those days as a shepherd translated directly over to the day which came when David slayed the giant Goliath of Gath on the battlefield in the valley of Elah. Uh, We saw that no man in all of Israel, including King Saul, by the way, dared to step out and to go to battle with Goliath of Gath. 
But David did when he heard Goliath insulting the name of the living God of Israel. The confidence that he had learned to have as a shepherd in God, the great faith that God had had instilled in him and nurtured in him, gave him confidence to step out and defeat Goliath against all odds. Of course, it was God who defeated Goliath through David, but David nevertheless had faith that Uh, that the Lord would deliver him from the hand of his enemy. And in the aftermath of Goliath being slain, we saw that David became this widely acclaimed national hero in Israel, which meant that Saul became increasingly jealous of David. Uh, The the people of Israel loved David. They saw him as as somebody to to follow, as kind of a, a national leader. And Saul's ego simply couldn't take it. They could, he couldn't take them loving somebody more than they loved him. And so he was actually driven insane, literally insane, by his own vanity and by his own pride. And thus for two chapters, we've seen Saul make every attempt to murder David or, or to see him killed in battle or to have one of his men kill David. But despite uh, promising his son Jonathan that he would not, when Jonathan went to reason with him, that he would not kill David, Uh, We saw Saul once again try to murder David at the end of chapter 19. Uh, David escaped, and he ran off to uh, Nioth at Ramah, which is where Samuel, the prophet, was ministering. And when three parties of Saul's messengers uh, had the Spirit of God come upon them and thus weren't able to retrieve David from there because the Spirit of God was preventing them from doing so, uh, King Saul decided to go to Naoth of Ramah himself only for the Spirit of God to not only prevent Saul from capturing David and taking him, but we also saw that Saul ended up humiliated and exposed as a fool as he ended up naked and prophesying before Samuel. Uh, that was a picture of Yahweh shaming, uh, shaming Saul before everybody uh, in this way. And this gave David an opportunity to slip away and once again run for his life. Uh, David was at this point afraid. And for a time, we're going to see that he was actually going to be controlled by fear. And we'll see the way that this affected his thinking and his decision-making as a result. But the 20th chapter will pick up right where chapter 19 left off. Now as we look at uh, chapters 1 to 23 in our text, we're going to see that the central point of this passage is that whatever we fear should be viewed in light of what we know about the future. And knowing and remembering that God holds the future in his hands is a key element of alleviating present fear and anxiety. So the 20th chapter begins by showing us that David indeed was greatly, greatly afraid of King Saul. Let's look at verses 1 to 11 uh, as we start in chapter 20. It says, Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity? And what is my sin before your father that he is seeking my life? He said to him, Far from it, you you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. So why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. 
Yet David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your sight. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, or he will be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is hardly a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. So David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I ought to sit down and eat with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field until the third evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked, Leave of me to run to Bethlehem his city, because it is the yearly sacrifice there for the whole family. If he says, It is good, your servant will be safe. But if he is very angry, know that he has decided on evil. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is iniquity in me, put me to death yourself. For why then should you bring me to your father? Jonathan said, Far be it from you, for if I should indeed learn that evil has been decided by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you about it? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Jonathan said to David, Come and let us go out into the field. So both of them went out to the field. Here we see David come before Jonathan, and he's afraid. And it's kind of strange to to see the way that fear and anxiety regarding King Saul is ruling over him here and overwhelming him here in this passage. It seems odd, uh, very peculiar, when we remember that this is the same young man who had boldly stepped out in faith to defeat the mighty giant Goliath in the name and in the power of the Lord. In fact, David has had all kinds of military experience, more experience on the battlefield since then. So he's probably a better soldier now, a better warrior now than he was even then. And yet, he is scared for his life. It seems odd to us that an uncircumcised Philistine giant who had made the heart of every other man in Israel absolutely melt in fear uh, didn't give David a sense of anxiety or trepidation, but that the anger and the fury and the insanity of the king of God's covenant people really filled David with fear and trepidation and anxiety. Fear is what drove David to run to Jonathan in fear of his life. And it drove him, uh, therefore, to go back to Gibeah, which was where Saul lived and where Jonathan would have been also. Uh, And we saw back in chapter 18 that Jonathan not only loved David as he loved himself and loved his own soul, but he had established a covenant referred to here as a covenant in the Lord uh, with David. Now, we weren't told exactly what that meant, We weren't told uh, what that covenant entailed explicitly, uh, but we saw that it involved Jonathan essentially relinquishing his rights to be Israel's next king, relinquishing them to David. It's because of this covenant friendship, this covenant relationship that he had with Jonathan that he went and sought protection by Jonathan. 
Uh, we're told that, uh, that David comes to speak to Jonathan, but if, if you're reading the NASB 95 translation, uh, you'll see that there's a footnote there indicating that instead of saying David came and said to Jonathan, it can also be translated to say that David came and said before Jonathan. And there's a huge difference between those two things, to come and say something to Jonathan and to say something before him. I think that's a very important detail because it shows that David is coming not as uh, Jonathan's companion or as his friend necessarily, but he's coming as a faithful and subordinate citizen of Israel. We see the same attitude reflected in uh, verses 7 and 8 where David refers to himself with Jonathan as your servant, not your friend. Even though they are friends, he's coming as his servant. He's humbled himself. So he's come with the right attitude at least. Uh, But he says to Jonathan, what have I done? What is my iniquity? And what is my sin before your father that he is seeking my life? He has no idea. Jonathan doesn't either, but David has no idea. All he knows is that it's uh, finally become clear to him that Saul wants him dead. And as the readers of this, we can almost feel the sense of of anxiety that he's got. We can almost feel the fear and the panic uh, that David is filled with. And panic, uh, fear, and anxiety has gotten the best of him here. We see that we see that when we consider that when David had run from Saul previously, when he ran off to uh, Naoth at Ramah, he had composed Psalm 59, which reflected that confident trust in God's sovereign protection. But there's nothing here. Uh, and, and I think it's worth noting that there is not even a single mention, a single instance of prayer in, in this entire chapter. I don't want to make an argument entirely from from silence here or anything, but it seems clear that David's mind, his thoughts, are not on God. Rather, his mind, his his thoughts, he's dwelling on the threat that King Saul has become to David's livelihood and the injustice of the situation. This is the same David who would write some of the boldest Uh, declarations in all of Scripture, like what he wrote in Psalm 27, verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? A couple verses later, verse 3, Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war rise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. That's the same guy. The same guy wrote that, that it has come before Jonathan asking for help. It's hard to believe it's the same person, but that is the result of David focusing on his circumstances rather than focusing on the certainty of God's covenant promises. What promise could David have possibly focused on here that might have assuaged, that might have relieved his fear and anxiety? Well, specifically for David, He could have, and I think we can say confidently that he should have, been dwelling on God's promise that David was anointed to be the next king of Israel. He had seen God's faithful deliverance time after time after time again in his life. And he's just a young man. Why is he so afraid now? It's because of what he's focusing on. David is actually showing us here how not 
to respond to fear and anxiety by thinking about the thing you're anxious of or fearful of. He's showing us that fixating and focusing on whatever our source of anxiety is will not alleviate our fear and anxiety. It will perpetuate that fear and anxiety. So it's good for us to understand that that's the inclination, that's that's the weakness of the flesh in David here, that he's got his mind set on the wrong thing. Jonathan's response to David's request is also very interesting because it shows us that David brought out a side of King Saul that even King Saul's own son didn't know existed. Uh, Jonathan had uh, no idea that his father desired to murder David. Uh, And if there was a desire before, he had no idea that that desire still remained. As far as Jonathan knew, uh, he had talked his father right off of that ledge. Remember, in the, the previous chapter, Jonathan had gone to Saul privately and urged him not to sin against innocent blood by murdering David. And Saul had agreed to just back off. He had seen the injustice of it, and he agreed that it would have been a bad move. So he backed off. And being the gracious man that he was, Jonathan simply seems to have just assumed the best about his father. And so his response to David's plea for help is to say, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. So why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. He's a little bit doubtful. He's thinking, David, you you couldn't be reading this situation correctly because my dad tells me everything. If he's going to do something, if if there's somebody he wants to kill, he comes to me and tells me about it just like he did in the previous chapter, right? Richard Phillips notes this in his commentary. He says, quote, No doubt Jonathan was not merely being naive or overly charitable in denying Saul's intention. More likely, he was still coming to grips with the terrible situation, and his mind had not yet accustomed itself to the evidence about his father. End quote. See, Jonathan had honored his father by assuming the best about him, but sometimes assuming the best about someone, it just doesn't turn out the way that we hope. So being confronted with the truth uh, would understandably be a very difficult pill for Jonathan to swallow. Uh, But the fact is that Jonathan had been deceived by his own father, and David needed to show him the evidence of this deception. And so David makes a vow regarding his testimony, adding, as truly as the Lord lives and as your soul lives. Now with this vow, With Jonathan hearing David make this vow, Jonathan knows that what he's saying, at least from his perspective, must be true. He knows that David isn't stretching the truth because he's made a vow on God's name. Uh, So he knew the faith that David had, and so he knew that David wouldn't have said this if David didn't think it was really true. So Jonathan promises to help David in any way that he can. Uh, as we get to verses 5 to 7, we read of the, uh, what the plan was. The plan was that David, that David comes up with uh, is to determine whether or not his life actually is in danger. Uh, but because David was Saul's 
son-in-law, he would have been expected to attend the dinner at Saul's house on the night of the new moon. Uh, But instead of attending, David would, uh, would be absent. He'd be out hiding in a field nearby. And when David's absence would be noticed by Saul, Uh, Jonathan was instructed to give an excuse for David's absence, Uh, the excuse being that David had to run off to Bethlehem to make a yearly sacrifice with his family. Now, I don't think that we can just breeze right through this like nothing has happened without making note of the fact that it involves lying. Uh, It involves bearing false testimony. It involves being dishonest. Uh, Some commentators have said, well, this is justifiable since it's ultimately for the sake of preserving a life and it's okay to lie for the sake of preserving a life. That's what some commentators argue while others, and and these are the commentators that, that I would side with, argue that it is nevertheless sinful to lie. Now, what all commentators agree on, however, is that David is being mastered here. He's being controlled here by fear rather than by faith. See, whenever we're confronted with something that makes us feel afraid, whenever we're confronted by fear or anxiety, we have a decision to make. Are we going to trust God with the outcome of the circumstance or the situation, or are we not? Are we going to trust Him or aren't we? Is fear going to control you, or will faith control you? We've got a decision to make. And that's not saying that trusting in God will necessarily completely alleviate your fear entirely. It's just a commitment to trust God even though you're feeling afraid. And I don't think Jonathan was necessarily completely uh, right in agreeing to go along with this plan, but the fact that he does reminds us that he does have a greater sense of loyalty and allegiance to his spiritual family than he does to his blood family. His allegiance to David, that is, is greater than his allegiance to his own father and to his own king. David was asking a lot. And David knew that he was asking a lot, and thus he appeals uh, to the covenant love that Jonathan has for him as the basis for fulfilling this request. You'll see in verse 8 in the NASB 95 that David says, Therefore deal kindly with your servant. Uh, The word that gets translated kindly there is the same word that we see David actually appeal to time after time in the Psalms as the basis for the request that he presents before God. Uh, That word is hesed. Hesed. That is one of the most, if you can learn one Hebrew word and only one Hebrew word, learn hesed. It's often translated mercy or loving kindness. Uh, What is mercy? Mercy is to receive something that you don't deserve. That's what David is asking for here because David doesn't deserve Jonathan's help. It's not owed to him in any way, shape, or form. And thus, hesed, this this covenant love, uh, this covenant mercy, is David's only hope. And that's why he's come to Jonathan for the sake of receiving has said. 
And while it's true that David's plan does involve sin, and thus we can't say that it was the best idea that David ever had, uh, there's one thing that I think we can commend David for here, and that is for the fact that in his moment of desperation, in his moment of need, despite the fact that he was feeling fearful and was to a pretty large degree being controlled by fear rather than faith, he nevertheless sought security in the certainty of covenant promises. Ralph Dale Davis notes this. He says, quote, In confusion and trouble, you take yourself to the one person who has made a covenant with you. In David's disintegrating world, there was only one space of sanity, one refuge still intact, Jonathan. There was covenant. There David could expect faithfulness. On what basis do we make petitions unto God? On what basis do we ask for anything from God? Because God doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe us any favors, and He would be under absolutely no obligation whatsoever to provide for us except for the fact that part of the covenant that He has made with His people in the new covenant is that He will provide. Uh, Paul appeals to this principle in Romans 8.32 where he writes, He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? That's not saying anything you want. It's talking about needs. Uh, he writes, uh, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Uh, Jesus made the same point in Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, where he said, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? the Lord will provide. He's promised that He will provide for our every need. Not for our wants, but for our every need. And on what basis will He do this? On the basis of His covenant love and covenant promises. Of course, that's, again, talking about the new covenant, which was established by the shedding of Christ's blood on behalf of all who repent and savingly believe on Him. But apart from Christ, we would only be cursed. We would be under the curse, and God's justice would require our eternal punishment for our sin. But by believing in Jesus, we have entered into a new relationship with the triune God. A relationship not of cursing and wrath and judgment, but of fatherly providence and fatherly blessing. David knew that he could find aid from the hand of a covenant friend. And indeed, what we see is that Jonathan was eager to help however he could. Uh, one more point before we move on. If Jonathan is this eager to help David because of his faithfulness to the covenant that he had with David, how much more eager do you suppose the Lord is to help those who are in covenant with him and who seek him in times of fear and trepidation? To say that he would be a million times more eager than Jonathan was would be an understatement. 
So Jonathan and David head out to a field to discuss their plans for how Jonathan uh, will inform David of King Saul's response to David's absence at this, uh, at this dinner. Let's continue, verses 12 to 17. It says, Then Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I, have sounded out my, uh, when I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if there is a good feeling toward David, shall I not then send to you and make it known to you? If it please my father to do you harm, may the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not make it known to you and send you away that you may go in safety. And may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive... Will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? You shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord require it at the hands of David's enemies. Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. Now there's a lot going on in what Jonathan says out here in the field, but Jonathan gives David the assurance that David had come seeking and needing. And he gives him this assurance by prefacing his comments with a solemn vow before the Lord. He says, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. And he promises that whatever the outcome of this situation at the dinner table may be, however King Saul reacts to David's absence, he will make sure that David will be informed. Jonathan is going to make sure that David knows whether it's safe to come back or whether he should flee. Uh, But just like he had previously thought that his father was dealing honestly and faithfully with him by promising not to kill David, Jonathan would now deal honestly and faithfully with David. But what we should see is that Jonathan is actually this man of great faith. In this moment when David's faith is, is, is lacking, he's lacking confidence, he's lacking assurance, he's lacking trust in God, Jonathan's faith, uh, faith in this instance stands out as a remarkable faith. He's bound by, by duty and law to honor his father on one hand. On the other hand, he's also in this covenant relationship with David. Uh, he had everything to lose, everything in the world to lose, if things started to go sideways with his father. Uh, in other words, he's between a rock and a hard place here. And yet he handles it with such faithfulness and with such grace. He navigates the situation with such composure. And ultimately, we should see that it's because of the confidence, the the trust, the faith that he has in God. That's why he's confident in this situation. Uh, We don't know when Jonathan exactly might have become aware of the fact that David was God's anointed next king of Israel, but it's clear in Jonathan's words here in this text that he was extremely aware of the fact that God had his hand on David and that David would be the next king. Uh, How could he have possibly known that? I mean, there are a couple ways, right? I mean, David could have told him. Um, 
David's family could have, could have told him. Um, I, I suppose God himself could have revealed it to Jonathan somehow. I think most likely, uh, you know, David was the one who told him. But the fact is, he knows that David is the next king. He knows it. He sees it. He's completely aware of it. But the fact that Jonathan uh, knew that is, it's first indicated in verse 13, where he says, May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. That's very significant. As, as John Woodhouse notes in his commentary, he says, quote, For Jonathan to ask that the Lord be with David as he had been with Saul was to ask that David should become king. End quote. And thus we should see that by saying this, Jonathan wasn't just saying, hey, you know, God be with you, David. He's not saying, you know, he's not hoping for the best for, for David. Rather, what he's saying here is that he was certain that God's plans for the future were going to come to pass. What David was going to do at God's hand, what God was going to raise David up to do, could not be thwarted. That's what Jonathan's saying here. How many of you know that that's the key to getting to the point where you're not being controlled by, by fear, but you're instead controlled by faith? When you remember that God's promises and His plans will all come to pass, and nothing, not even the situation that you find yourself in, is going to get in the way of all of His plans coming to pass. Of course, this, this meant that Jonathan knew that he himself was not going to be the next king of Israel, uh, that he wouldn't be his father's replacement, as was the cultural norm in ancient Israel. And yet it doesn't even bother Jonathan. Jonathan never complains, never even expresses a single syllable of discontentment about the fact that David is the one who's going to be king. It doesn't bother him in the least. See, the flesh would have inclined him to, to resist and to rebel and to feel discontent about God's plans. But Jonathan's faith in God and Jonathan's love for God motivated him to put God's glory and God's plans and God's purposes ahead of Jonathan's own personal plans and purposes in life. All of his ambitions were cast aside for the glory of God. That's what great faith does. Given his great faith in God's plans coming to pass, he, he turns the tables around. D David had come to him asking for, for help, and now he, he turns the tables around. He's asking David for help. He says, If I am still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? Why would he say that? Why would he ask such a thing? It's because it was common practice in the ancient world that when one king was replaced by someone who wasn't an heir, uh, but a new dynasty came in, the new king would take the sword to the entire family of the old king. See, David, uh, coming to Jonathan, he hadn't been dwelling on God's purposes and, and plans. Uh, he wasn't thinking or, or acting or, or living in light of what God had planned for the future. But what a good friend Jonathan was to be the one that not only David could go to to find safety, but even more to be the one to remind David of the certainty of all of God's promises and plans coming to pass. Friends, not only do we need to have friends like that who do that for us in times when our faith 
is weak, but we also need to be that kind of friend to others as well. But here we see what a great man of faith Jonathan truly was. His faith in God is as great as any of the fathers of the faith uh, in the Old Testament. William Blake, another commentator, writes, he says, quote, uh, There has seldom, if ever, been exhibited a finer instant instance of triumphant faith than when the prince, with all the resources of his kingdom at his beck, made this request of the helpless outlaw, end quote. And it's because of his, uh, his unswerving, unyielding faith in God that Jonathan actually uses this as an opportunity to secure a safe future for himself and his own descendants. And that is, that's actually going to be a significant factor when we meet Jonathan's own helpless son, uh, Mephibosheth, uh, down the road in our study. Now friends, you and I, may not face the same kinds of challenges uh, and afflictions that David and Jonathan faced, but we nevertheless do face challenges, don't we? Who among us could, could ever rightfully claim that there has never been and there will never be a time when we'll be tempted to be controlled by fear or we'll be tempted to set our minds on our circumstances rather than on the certainty of God's uh, promises and, and, and to view them as David did as if, uh, as if God didn't mean it or as if God didn't exist or, or as if God's plans for the future are less than 100% entirely, absolutely certain to come to pass. David and Jonathan have covenant duties toward one another. And these covenant duties serve as a guardrail that prevent us from driving off a proverbial cliff when challenges and afflictions and temptations come. Uh, what are a Christian's covenant duties? Well, if you're married, there's one example. You're, you're in a covenant relationship. What are your covenant duties to your, your partner? Before God, by the way. Mutual faithfulness, right? To, to the end. Your covenant to one another was sealed with these words or with words like them. I so-and-so take thee so-and-so to be my lawfully wedded wife or my lawfully wedded husband to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. Because marriage is a lifelong monogamous covenant between one man and one woman. So those are the words that we commonly use to seal the covenant of marriage. Uh, the Christian also has covenant duties to God, duties of obedience and submission, duties involving worshiping God, not only individually, but corporately with a local church. And let's not forget that we have covenant duties. I'd say it is a duty, it's an obligation to profess Christ even before our unbelieving friends and neighbors, or to take a stand for God's Word even when it might be very costly to do so, even when it might involve loss of the friendship, loss of a job, any kind of great loss. But what's, what's really interesting, as we consider Jonathan's words here, is that the basis of his appeal to David is exactly the same as David's basis of appeal for what he asked of Jonathan earlier in the chapter. Has said, covenant love. He says, you shall not cut off your loving kindness. There's the word, 
Hesed, you shall not cut off your Hesed from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Jonathan had such great faith and such great confidence that God's plans would come to pass that he even at this point spoke of a future when David's life would no longer be threatened by his enemies. A future when God would cut off all of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Do you get what he's saying there? Considering that his dad, his father, is one of David's enemies? See, what we, what we have to understand when we consider Jonathan's words is that our view of the future has everything to do with how we respond to our view of what's in front of us in any given moment. Our view of the future has everything to do with how we respond to our current circumstances. The present circumstances, the present challenges that we face, they're going to come and go. They're, they're here one minute, they're gone the next but God has promised great things for the future and those things will all come to pass. And they are more important than our present circumstances and challenges, whatever they may be. Maybe those things in the future will come in part because of our present challenges. Maybe they won't. Either way, God's plans are sure to come to pass. Everything that God has planned to do is going to happen. Our present challenges will not thwart God's plans. They will not stand in the way of God's plans in even the slightest bit. How many of you know that God's plans for the future, if you have repented and savingly believed in Christ, His only Son, our Lord, His plans involve you. His plans involve you. We're going to get to that before we're done today. But what's remarkable about what Jonathan says here about God eliminating God's enemies is that this sets Jonathan against his own father. But there does come a point when we have to decide which side we're going to be on, doesn't there? Eventually there does. But having made covenant promises to one another, Jonathan and David return to the present situation and they have to come up with a plan by which Jonathan will inform David, let him know uh, the outcome of the dinner that David was planning on missing. Uh, let's continue, verses 18 to 23. It says, Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. When you have stayed for three days, you shall go down quickly and come to the place where you hid yourself on that eventful day, and you shall remain by the stone Ezel. I will shoot three arrows to the side as though I shot at a target, and behold, I will send the lad, saying, Go find the arrows. If I specifically say to the lad, Behold, the arrows are on this side of you, Get them, then come, for there is safety for you and no harm as the Lord lives. But if I say to the youth, Behold, the arrows are beyond you, go, for the Lord has sent you away. As for the agreement of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. And this was the plan. This is how David would know whether he needed to run for safety, run for his life, or whether his life was no longer in danger and so he can come back and just return to normal life. 
If Jonathan says to the young man who will retrieve his arrows, behold, the arrows are on this side of you, get them, it meant that David can safely return. But if Jonathan says to the young man, behold, the arrows are beyond you, uh, then David will need to flee for his life. Uh, but Jonathan, what we, one of the things we need to see here is that Jonathan sees the hand of God in the midst of this. Even if David must flee, he, he correctly sees that it's because the Lord has sent you away. That's another key to overcoming fears, to learn to see the hand of God, the sovereign hand of God in every circumstance. Jonathan concludes this passage by saying, verse 23, As for the agreement of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. Of course, the, the, the agreement, the covenant that he's speaking of including the, uh, included the covenant promises that David made for the future when he would be Israel's king. It was sure to happen because it was in God's plans. Does fear ever get the best of you? Be honest with yourself. Does fear ever take control of you? Are you ever controlled by fear instead of being controlled by faith? Do you ever give it enough control that maybe you lose a few hours of sleep? Do you ever give it enough control that you maybe lash out at those who are closest to you? Uh, the challenges that we face uh, will vary greatly from one person to the next, of course. I mean, obviously. But whatever we fear, whatever we face, it should all be viewed in light of what we know about the future. And knowing and remembering that God holds the future in His hands is a key element in alleviating present fear and anxiety. There are so many things to be afraid of in the world. Nobody can deny it. There are all kinds of threats out there. This is a, a world with very real dangers and threats. And yet, the Christian's great comfort in the midst of it all is that God is the one who is sovereign over it all. In fact, He has ordained every circumstance that we find ourselves in. I had a conversation with a good friend this past week. Uh, he was asking me if I think it's true that the reason people who claim to be Christian uh, continue in their sin without truly repenting is because they don't know enough doctrine or if it's because maybe they aren't really Christians. He had read in a book that what people need to overcome sin is to just know doctrine. And uh, his objection was, I think it's maybe because those people aren't really Christians. Uh, and I think that many times it is because that person isn't really a Christian. But I noted that one doctrine that Christians need to know, and one doctrine that really will have an effect on uh, how we live our lives, including how we turn from sin, is the doctrine of God's sovereignty. Now, will, will God's sovereignty cause us on this side of glory to be sinless? No but perhaps it will result in us sinning less. And what I mean by that is that God's sovereignty reminds us that He's in control over every situation that we face. In fact, He has ordained every situation that we face. And if we can remind ourselves of that in the midst of trials and temptations, that can serve very well as a shield that prevents us from being controlled by fear which leads us to sin. Paul would say to the Romans, whatever doesn't come from faith is sin. 
So being afraid will lead us to sin if we let fear control us. If God is as sovereign as his word proclaims him to be, why should we ever, ever allow ourselves to be controlled by and drawn into sin by fear? If God really is as sovereign as he claims. Is it important to believe that God is sovereign? Oh yeah. Whatever we fear should be viewed in light of what we know about the future. How do we know anything about the future? I don't know what's going to happen in five minutes. I don't know what's going to happen in five seconds. How can we know anything about the future? We know things about the future by learning what God's word says about the future. And what does God's word say about the future? What do we know about the future from God's word? We know that there is a new kingdom As surely as Jonathan knew that a new kingdom was coming in David, we know that a new kingdom has come. Because Jonathan knew that David was the rightful king of Israel, he took this situation as an opportunity to make peace with the rightful king. And while he did it in part out of fear of the coming king, he also did it because he loved the coming king and he desired to honor the king. He knew this king's goodness and would not allow himself to be named among the enemies of this coming king. And friends, I strongly, strongly suggest that you should do the same toward God. Make peace with him while you can. How do you make peace with him? by believing in his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because let me tell you what God has promised for the future. The day is coming when at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Of course, that's from Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. That day is coming. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, either in accordance with your will or against it. You don't have a choice, but you do have a chance to make peace with him now. Listen to what the rightful King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Lords says about fear. Matthew chapter 10 starting with verse 26. He says, Therefore, do not fear them, that is, those who would hate you for belonging to Jesus. Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, I speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet, not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also Confess him before my Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Whatever we fear needs to be viewed in light of what we know about the future and knowing and remembering that God holds the future in his hands is a key element 
of fighting against fear controlling us. And so I urge you today to make peace with this King of Kings and this Lord of Lords. Peace is made with Him by trusting in His work on Calvary. Trusting that His righteousness, the very righteousness of Christ, the righteousness that God, that God requires for salvation, it has been imputed to you. It's been credited to you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If you have done that, then may the certainty of that peace, both in the present and in the future, be what motivates the way that you respond to fear and anxiety and challenges and temptations. If God did not even spare His own Son on your behalf, how much more certain can you be that He will not spare you the grace that you need to endure the challenges and struggles that you face? Set your minds, not on your circumstances, but on things above. Dwell on God's goodness and the certainty of His plans. In Paul's words, and we'll close with this. In Paul's words from Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word. And we confess to you that it's so easy for sin uh, to, to, to be in us, to be found in us, that it's so easy for us to be controlled by fear. Indeed, the media know that. Salespeople know that. Uh, everybody knows that there's a way to control people by fear. And yet we ask, O oh Lord, that we would not be controlled by fear, but that you would grow us in our faith uh, to such a point that we would be uh, governed, that we would be ruled by our faith controlled by faith, not by our fear. We pray for confident assurance of your plans and your purposes, uh, not only in general, but specifically as they relate to us. And we thank you that you have promised nothing but good for us. You've promised that you're causing all things, all things, every circumstance in our lives to grow us in Christ's likeness. So we pray for that kind of perspective, Lord, where we can see our, our trials and our temptations as opportunities to grow in the likeness of Christ by turning away the temptation to be ruled and controlled by fear. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.